This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Really pumped to bring you this episode today with Michael Lacey on the Chuhan decision, recently granted leave by the Supreme Court of Canada. We've got Harpreet Sani in uh, my favorite segment so far of the podcast. And finally, Catherine Sawicki enlightening us about the ins and outs of the intersection between criminal and immigration law. We hope you enjoy. So Danielle, I think it's fair to say that you're law famous. How do you build, how did you build your profile in the community? How do you decide what speaking engagements to do? What advice do you have for young or mid-career lawyers who are looking to build their profile in the community? Well, I think, you know, if I'm law famous, it's, it has only uh, everything to do with my mentor, who's famous, famous. Um, but, I, you know, I never say no to a speaking engagement mm-hmm. uh, unless I'm going to be away uh, with my family. I will always say yes, um, no matter the engagement. Uh, and I think what I've noticed now as I have started to chair programs and organize panels is that people, and I I don't know that everyone in the bar knows this, people explicitly ask for speaking opportunities. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong if you are um, a junior crown, uh, but you really want to become involved in some of the associations, um, and you want to make deeper connections with some of your colleagues. There's nothing wrong, and you should. You're encouraged to pick up the phone and speak to you know, members of the profession that are chairing these programs that are running these panels and say, hey, I'm really interested in digital evidence. I am really interested in uh, Garofoli applications. Can I, can you keep me in mind next time you're running a program? So, you know, it's not any different than uh, other areas of practice and life. If you want something, you have to ask for it. No, that's good advice. Learn everything you need to know about drug-related offenses with Prosecuting and Defending Drug Cases, Volume 11 in Iman's Criminal Law Series. This practical resource explores the different types of drug offenses, including possession, trafficking, importing, exporting, and production, as well as drug distribution conspiracy and criminal organization offenses. All topics are addressed from both the prosecution and defense perspective with insights from authors Nathan Gorham and Brianna Vanderbeek, both defense, and Jeremy Streeter, a crown. For more information and to order today, please visit emon.ca slash drug cases. For our listeners, Emon is offering 10% off. Just visit emon.ca slash drug cases and enter code lawyers lounge at checkout. Our next segment features an interview with Michael Lacey looking at the status of litigation to challenge Bill C-75. Now, as will become immediately apparent, we recorded this interview with Michael before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, which is to say a few months ago now. Since we recorded our interview with Michael, the Supreme Court of Canada has granted leave in the Chohan decision. We wanted to give you a quick update on that case uh, before you jump into the interview with Michael. As a refresher, the Court of Appeal for Ontario in the Chohan decision held, one, that the removal of peremptory challenges is constitutional, and two, 
that the removal cannot apply retrospectively. The, the court went on to order a new trial, I should say. Uh, the Crown has appealed from the court's determination on the retrospectivity issue. And interestingly, they've also added a new ground of appeal, uh, inviting the Supreme Court of Canada to apply the curative proviso in the event that they find an error. This is interesting because the Crown did not invite the Court of Appeal to apply the curative proviso. Uh, this is likely related to the granting of leave in the Jasser decision, as Michael will tell you more about in the interview. Mr. Shohan has also cross-appealed from the court's decision and is arguing to the Supreme Court of Canada again that the removal of peremptory challenges is unconstitutional. So everything is up for grabs in the Shohan decision at the Supreme Court. I think it is likely, although not confirmed, that it'll be heard in tandem with the Jasser decision, and that will definitely be one to watch on the Supreme Court's docket over the next year. It's Michael Lacey, and I'm a partner at Browdy Thorning, LLP in Toronto. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. So thanks very much for coming to speak to us, Michael, about the fallout of Bill C-75 and the cases that we have been getting decisions on throughout the fall and into early 2020. Uh, for those who don't know, you were an intervener in the RS decision at the Court of Appeal. Yeah, so uh, at the time I was the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, and together with Dan Brown uh, and my associate Deepa Nagandi, we inter intervened on the appeal. And, and that sort of is a story in itself that we were able to expedite the appeal as quickly uh, as we were. Uh, Alan Gold came on uh, pro bono, actually, for the main appellant. Um, and we were able to get the case before the court really quickly. So let's take a step back. What, I mean, what was the issue in RS? I know most people have probably become familiar with it, but what was the issue in RS, and, and why did you get it heard so quickly? Well, Bill, Bill C-75 eliminated preliminary inquiries, as most of the listeners will know, for those offenses where the maximum penalty was not 14 years or more imprisonment. And the Ontario government, the ministry, took this very odd position about the effect of that bill, although the federal government agreed those changes were prospective and not retrospective. The Ministry of the Attorney General, for reasons only known to their deputies, I guess, <laughs> decided that they would take on this issue and argue that that meant even if you were in the system, had requested a hearing, that poof, it would disappear and they would eliminate your right to the preliminary inquiry as of September 19th. And as I understand it, that was a pretty unique position amongst the provinces in Ontario. Yeah, really, at the outset, Ontario stood alone on that issue. Later on, um, I think they convinced some of their friends in the other ministries to maybe <laughs> join their position. But uh, even uh, among the provinces, I think there was only one or two provinces that agreed with the Ontario government. Uh, Quebec, I think, was one of them, and perhaps uh, Saskatchewan. But all of the other provinces took the position that the federal government did, which was that, no, these amendments were intended to apply prospectively only based upon uh, this concept of vested rights, a vested substantive right. How did we get here? Do you think there was an error in drafting or a sloppiness not providing for a transitional framework? Yeah, I, I think the federal government really does bear some responsibility for this. Um, they could have solved this problem by simply including a transitional provision, and they did in the act with respect to other things. So mm -hmm. there were some bail amendments, uh, and there was a transitional pro provision for that. Um, as you recall, the politics around B Bill C-75, there was a big rush to get the bill passed. Uh, a lot of, uh, well, I was going to say a lot of people speculated, but it wasn't speculation. The minister at the time pretty much made it clear that this was uh, aimed at 
preventing sexual assault complainants from having to testify twice. Mm -hmm. It was tied up with amendments to the jury selection procedure and um, in, in a response to the Stanley verdict. And they really just wanted to get this law passed. It was a massive oversight by uh, the Department of Justice, though. Mm-hmm. And I know that you were able to get the appeal in RS heard very quickly, but there were still a number, I mean, a large number of cases that I expect were affected by having been denied a preliminary inquiry. Do you have any insight into what has happened in those cases? Are there Jordan considerations? Yeah, I think that raises a very interesting question in terms of Jordan considerations. The, the, you know, the ministry uh, in Ontario had the option of trying to consolidate matters uh, and and bringing a reference directly to the Court of Appeal. Uh And you recall, of course, they had done that on the environmental, um, uh, the federal act that they had challenged. They brought a reference in that case. And without getting into all the details, there, there were high... High-level meetings makes it sound like it's secret, but there were meetings among various uh, parties about whether there'd be cooperation in trying to get the matter uh, to the Court of Appeal by way of reference, and there was no uptake by the ministry on that. So they decided to sort of divide and conquer across the province. They'd sort of see what cases were out there. They'd bring them before uh, the preliminary inquiry judges, work their way up by way of certiorari. Um, and to get back to your question, sorry, the in terms of what happened ultimately, um, I know I had a case that uh, we had to reschedule the preliminary inquiry. Mm-hmm. We were able to get that heard. Uh, ultimately, that case is resolving for other reasons, but I think it's going to be a live issue about whether or not that time period will be uh, counted as against the Crown, you know, if particularly given other uh, ministries did not take the same position that they did. Right, so the question of whether bad decision-making in the AG's office is crown delay or an exceptional circumstance or something of the like. Yeah, and I'd like to say it's an easy answer to that question, and it's obvious that it'd be crown delay. I'm not so sure that's true, though. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, you can't take every uh, decision that's aimed at resolving a legal issue and, you know, an important legal issue and necessarily say that that's going to count against the crown in in the same way that if they brought it to Shirei, proceeding in in the ordinary course that would ordinarily not count against the crown how'd you get the appeal heard so quickly so this is where there was significant cooperation from uh the parties so uh, i'd mentioned alan gold was involved adam weisberg and i forgot to mention mark halfyard as well was on for uh the other main appellant and um there was a meeting We, we made a request through the court of appeal uh, to meet with Justice Watt to have a case management meeting. Mm-hmm. The, it, I think it's referenced in the decision that he expedited the appeal. The Crown Law Criminal was very cooperative at that stage because they recognized that there was a lot at stake and a lot of cases uh, were going to be affected by this. And as I recall, we agreed to perfect the appeal within two weeks. And the Crown had no issue with that. They agreed to, to respond within two weeks. We were able to dispense with the appeal books. Obviously, they didn't, didn't right. mean anything for anything. And, and the court, uh, through the Chief Justice or the Associate Chief Justice, assembled, you know, you couldn't ask for a better panel for an important criminal law mm-hmm. issue. Yeah. So the Court of Appeal and the Appellate Council handled this very well, but there were still pretty messy impacts on a bunch of trials in the system. Not nearly as big of a mess, though, as I think we've seen in the fallout of the elimination of peremptory challenges. Yeah, that, that is a debacle, I think, <laughs> on a massive scale. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, you can similarly, I think, put the blame on, on MAG in, in this instance. And 
their decision to once again take a take a view that was very different than other provinces. So, uh, New Brunswick, notably, there were a number number of decisions mm -hmm. uh, out of New Brunswick. By it started with a decision by Justice Walsh, who's a very respected uh, judge across Canada on criminal law issues, um, and he, he was of the view he did not follow. Uh, the Ontario position, and he was of the view that the law was prospective only. Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily fault Justice McMahon's judgment either. I, I think that was a trickier position than the preliminary inquiry position because, you know, on its face, uh, preliminary, uh, sorry, selection of juries tend to almost scream out procedural as opposed to substantive. And, um, you know, in the end, of course, the Court of Appeal uh, upheld the constitutionality of the provisions, and they did conclude, Justice Watt concluded on behalf of the, the panel that, uh, at least in one respect, the law was prospective, right? So the, in terms of who would try the challenge for cause, he did conclude that that was prospective. Uh, but that's just created such a nightmare now in terms of all of these uh, very serious prosecutions which are in jeopardy. Right, and just, of course, we're talking about the Chuhan decision there, Justice McMahon's decision, and now the Court of Appeals decision. What's happening with that case, and what do you expect to happen with it as it goes up to the Supreme Court of Canada? Well, it's going to be very much influenced, I think, by the Jasser decision. So uh, the Federal uh, Public Prosecution Service of Canada obtained leave to appeal from the Jasser decision, and that was a bifurcated appeal that dealt only with the issue of the manner of the jury selection. This was not a Bill mm -hmm. C-75 case, but it called into question um, the issue of whether or not you could ever apply the proviso to errors made in the constitution of the jury. And there'd been a line of cases from our Court of Appeal. I'd argued one called Nuruddin, which mm -hmm. I think was one of the first. Uh, Dirk Durstein had argued husbands yeah. as well, and they had sought leave in husbands and unsuccessful. They were not successful. Both of those uh, decisions, the court had concluded that you could not apply the proviso, the procedural proviso, which is 686 sub 1 sub B sub 4 of the criminal code, uh, to errors that go to the constitution of the court. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, in Nuruddin, you know, we, we got a lot of pushback from the court on this. It was not an easy oral argument. Uh, and it was in front of a very good panel that included Justice uh, Doherty, Justice Laskin, and I, I, I fail to remember the third uh, judge. But the, I remember the analogy I gave to the court, and in, in a rare moment, Justice Doherty, I think, uses it in his judgment and adopts that <laughs> he doesn't normally agree with me very I'm often. <laughs> but I'll take it. I'll take what I can get. And in the uh, judgment, I gave the example, well, what if you improperly constituted the court as a Ontario Court of Justice court, and there had been no re-election. But sure, you could have re-elected, but you didn't re-elect, and there's no, nothing else about the trial that's unfair other than you took away my right to have a judge and jury trial, or you took away my right to have a superior court jury trial without following the, the, the procedures. And there had been a series of cases from our court that had concluded that is the kind of error that can't be cured by the proviso mm -hmm. because there's certain types of errors that go to the constitution of the court that can't be cured. And uh, I think it was uh, in um, Jasser, I'm forgetting the name of the judge now, it wasn't Justice Pachaco, but um, a, a new appointment, relatively new appointment to the court followed that reasoning and said you can't apply the proviso. Yeah. And that is the issue that's now, I think, is going to be front and center in the Jasser appeal about whether or not the proviso can apply. And circling back, of course, to Chuhan, if the proviso can apply in a Jasser scenario, the argument would be that it could also apply 
in the Shuhan uh, scenario. And I know the Crown Law Criminal is seeking leave. No doubt they're going to ask to join the appeal up if they mm -hmm. get leave uh, with Jasser. But interestingly, they didn't make this argument at the Court of Appeal. Hmm. And they didn't ask to sit five judges at the Court of Appeal. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether the Supreme Court of Canada thinks they need to hear the Chuhan appeal at the same time of Jasser or that the uh, Attorney General of Ontario can just get their voice and intervene on the appeal. Right, it's almost been taken as a given that in these kinds of jury selection cases, the proviso can't apply. And so they've, they've stopped arguing it. They certainly didn't argue it in Chuhan, as you're saying. Right, and, and, and it's not just an Ontario position. That position uh, originates, or at least from my trying to recollect back to when I argued Nuruddine from a case out of British Columbia, where mm -hmm. the British Columbia Court of Appeal came uh, to the same conclusion. And uh, I know the New Brunswick Court of Appeal has come to the same conclusion. Right. I think pretty consistently across Canada, courts have followed that line of reasoning now. Mm -hmm. And so that we know that Chuhan's already gone up and been decided, but there are a number of cases in the system that will be impacted by the decision in Chuhan, quite famously now the Macmillan case, um, the College Street Bar case have been in the news about that. There are concerns that all of these serious trials are going to have to be sent back for a new trial. Is there some concern that the Supreme Court may try to prevent that from happening? I mean, are you worried about what might happen with the proviso at the Supreme Court? Well, you know, I, I think certainly by granting leave, the court intends to answer that question. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I don't purport to know why and when the court grants leave or when they don't grant leave. But I think if you look back at those cases where they've granted leave, that's not always an indication that they intend to overturn the court. And in fact, sometimes it's just to resolve the question mm. in a manner that puts it to bed uh, altogether. So I think it'll be interesting. I, I think uh, it, it, it's going to be a lively and heated argument uh, at, at the Supreme Court of Canada. Certainly they are going to be concerned about the idea that you have to send all of these cases back because there were what some people might say minor aberrations in the way uh, the jury was selected. Um, I, I still come back to the fact that if the court is not properly constituted in accordance with the criminal code provisions, well, how, how can you sort of allow that verdict to stand? But I guess we'll find out soon enough. It's fair to say that Bill C-75, in addition to undermining a whole whack of substantive rights, has been a bit of a procedural disaster in its rollout, particularly thanks to the Ontario AG. So I guess the saga is not yet over. I, 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 it, it was such an ill-advised and <laughs> ill-considered piece of legislation, and everyone told them that during the consultations. Uh, unfortunately, they, they pushed it through. Whoever at Justice decided not to do a transition provision, I, I mean, if the person's still working there, I'll, I'd be amazed <laughs> because of the, the problem that created. Um, and now the substantive changes, obviously, to jury selection and what that's done to the system. And, you know, I think a lot of people who do more jury cases than I do would say that even the elimination of peremptory challenges will do more harm than good in the long term. Yeah. Can you talk about that, Michael? Because I think, you know, if there's even one member of the public listening, which is uncertain at this stage, <laughs> um, it, I think they would look at it and say the elimination of preliminary inquiries or the elimination of peremptory challenges, those are just kind of procedural um, tweaks to the system to, to enhance efficiencies. Why? Why do we care that we've lost those procedural 
Right. Well, on the preliminary inquiry side, uh, one of the things, you know, forget about the perspective of defense lawyers. One of the things that uh, the Crown Attorney Associations that provided submissions to the government uh, tried to impress upon the government at the time was that there's value in a preliminary inquiry to them. There's value to narrowing issues, to sometimes testing the strength of the Crown's case. In cases where you had a vulnerable witness or a vulnerable complainant, particularly in a sexual assault allegation, we can all understand why you might want to protect that person from having to testify twice. Um, but there was a way to do that already with the preferring of the indictment, which was really an act of Crown discretion that could be used to, um, you know, for, to, to eliminate the ability to hear from a vulnerable witness twice or to put a vulnerable witness through that twice. And on balance, uh, ultimately the position of the CLA, which I think in principle many parties endorsed, was that if you want to restrict preliminary inquiries, at the very least, the one way that you could have done it was to have a leave requirement. So mm -hmm. instead of saying no to preliminary inquiries or creating this 14-year cutoff, which is insane in a lot of ways because you know a drug trafficker, even a small amount, mm -hmm. is facing life imprisonment, whereas you can be facing a very serious criminal code charge and not be entitled to a preliminary inquiry. And that kind of difference is, is again, a little bit mind-boggling to me. But you could have had a requirement that you satisfy the court that you, you want leave to have a preliminary inquiry, either party, mm -hmm. and that you wanted it for a very particular purpose to explore issues. Um, so that's on the preliminary inquiry side. And on the peremptory challenge side, the, what, what it was for most people, I think for uh, the, the sense of the defense lawyers who would use peremptory challenges was that you use them in most cases where you had um, a, an accused who um, was racialized and you were trying to get deeper into the jury pool mm -hmm. to improve the representation of the jury. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's an exact science either, but there's, there was something about participating in the process that way and having some control in some circumstances as to who would be on the jury, that that uh, gave you a sense that at least the appearance of fairness uh, of the process was strengthened through that. And uh, I, I still say that in, in the absence of improving compensation for jurors, for example, provincially, and ensuring you can otherwise make sure there's diversity among juries and representation among juries, that that was something that was uh, allowed us to do something uh, for our clients, and, and we lost something important. Maybe time will tell us differently, but I, at least the appearance issues. This episode is brought to you by Iman's Criminal Law Series. Confidently navigate criminal law cases with detailed procedural and tactical guidance from subject matter experts. Each book covers a specialized area of criminal practice written from the perspective of both Crown and defense. The series is anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian Greenspan and Justice Enzo Rondinelli. To learn more about the series and read a sample chapter from each book, visit iman.ca slash lawyers lounge criminal. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off. Just visit iman.ca slash lawyers lounge criminal and enter code lawyers lounge at checkout. We're doing something we like to call intersections, which is a segment that will explore the intersection between Canadian criminal law and other areas of the law. An obvious choice, of course, is immigration law. And we're very lucky to have Catherine Sawicki with us today to talk about that intersection. She uh, has worked at Green and Spiegel, 
PwC Law and is now the managing partner of Soroti Law Canada. She's a co-author of the popular book, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, Practitioner's Handbook, now in its second edition. And we're very lucky to have Catherine join us. Catherine, we're really happy to have you here. As you know, uh, criminal and immigration law intersect all the time. And we want to run through uh, a couple of problems, a couple of issues that we encounter all the time since we have you in the hot seat. So let's start with this scenario. You've got a client who is on a work permit or a study permit. They're here temporarily in the country and they're charged with uh, a criminal code offense. What do we as criminal lawyers need to do, need to know? I think that's a really good question. Anyone in Canada for a temporary purpose, such as a visitor, a person on a study permit or work permit is often referred to as a foreign national. And I just wanna kind of set that scene. So under the immigration legislation, a foreign national is an inadmissible to Canada on the grounds of criminality or serious criminality if they're convicted of an offense under an act of parliament, of course, which we know criminal code is an act of parliament. So the goal for counsel is to just make sure you don't get a conviction. Okay. <laughs> Pretty well, easy, right? No problem. Fine. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned criminality and serious criminality. What's the difference? What makes something serious? Uh, in immigration, I know it's it's very interesting how we have that, that distinguished factor. There's two main points. Uh, the first is that only a foreign national can be inadmissible when it's a criminality scope. So it can only fall within the scope of criminality. Whereas a permanent resident of Canada or a foreign national can be inadmissible under the serious criminality provision. The next point, that's the next distinguishing fact, is the actual definitions. So criminality is um, a person who would be convicted in Canada of an offense under an act of parliament punishable by way of indictment or two offenses under any act of parliament so long as they don't arise out of a single occurrence. Whereas serious criminality, the person's convicted under an act of parliament punishable by a maximum term of imprisonment of at least 10 years um, or any offense under the act, um, which a term of imprisonment of more than six months has been imposed. Okay. So does that mean if we negotiate a resolution where the client is pleading guilty to a summary conviction offense, then we're in the clear, we're all good? If it's a pure summary conviction offense and the person has only been convicted of that one, absolutely. You're fantastic. Great. We love it. Um, but if we negotiate to a summary conviction on a hybrid offense or the Crown agrees to proceed summarily, does that solve the problem? No, it does not. Okay. It does not solve the problem. So, and it's interesting that you say that because if it's a hybrid offense uh, under the criminal code, in the immigration legislation, we consider it to be indictable. Mm -hmm. So it would have to be a pure summary offense conviction. But if there's two or more summary convictions, if there's two or more summary offense convictions, uh, then unfortunately the person's inadmissible. Okay. So I think, I think that criminal lawyers think about immigration consequences mostly in the context of uh, resolution or sentencing. Uh, and that's because of the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in FAM, uh, which kind of slapped us all on the wrist and dictated that these are really consequences that should be explored at the outset before a guilty plea is entered. And I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about that uh, some other time. But 
can lay, lay it out for us. Like, what does an accused person need to appreciate about their immigration consequences before a plea? Well, I think the sentencing provisions play a significant role in the immigration world. Um, you know, and, and that's really the important piece of the context for us in the immigration world is making sure that you consider the sentencing provisions. Um, so things like a conditional discharge, absolute discharge, not guilty, charges withdrawn, um, the foreign national participates in a diversion program instead of some guilty conviction are obviously the best outcomes. Um, but the immigration legislation states that if a, a permanent resident or foreign national gets sentenced to a term of imprisonment of six months or longer, then that's it. They're inadmissible. So we want to make sure that they don't get that term of imprisonment. Okay, and term of imprisonment, what, what does that mean in the immigration context? Is it any custodial sentence, whether or not it's served in the community or in a facility? Well, it's interesting because there was a lot of debate about it, but in 2017, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, came out with, with TRAN. So that was really fantastic because it clarified some of the provisions for us pertaining to what actually constitutes a term of imprisonment. Like, is it just jail time? Does the time before count, etc.? And they basically concluded the Supreme Court said a conditional sentence of imprisonment imposed pursuant to sections 742 all the way through to 742.7 of the Criminal Code does not constitute a term of imprisonment for serious criminality. So for immigration purposes, all that time doesn't count. So what I think is really important from that decision is that when criminal counsel is negotiating on behalf of a foreign national, they should keep that in mind to see how you can position it the best way possible for your client to try and negotiate maybe some other mm -hmm. uh, terms and conditions under that particular provision. So then I take it a, a longer conditional sentence would be better for a foreign national than anything over six months in jail. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that we've just talked about uh, visitors uh, or foreign nationals to Canada. What about PRs? What about permanent residents? Um, permanent residents only fall within the scope of serious criminality. So if something meets that level, that, that definition of, of 10 years or more in the offense, um, that's where they would fall. Or if they get six months or longer in jail, then they would be inadmissible and they would not have any appeal rights. So it's important um, to make sure that when you're talking about a permanent resident or you're dealing with someone who is a permanent resident that you do everything possible to try and negotiate um, less than six months or around that, that term of imprisonment, if possible, just because we don't want them to fall within that scope. Their appeal rights would be taken away. Oh, and what do you mean by that? What happens, let's say for once in our lives, Lisa and I are not successful and our client ends up convicted of serious criminality and they're either a foreign national or they're a permanent resident. What happens from that point onward? If they're a permanent resident um, and if they have a jail term, obviously of six months or longer, when they're done serving their jail term, they would be requested to depart Canada. So they'd be removed, they'd be deported from Canada. For the foreign national, if they would like to come back to Canada, if it's serious criminality, both of them would need something called an ARC, an authorization to return to Canada. Only the Minister of Immigration issues those, and they take a couple years for consideration in order for the person to come back. Of course, um, 
if they qualify for a record suspension, and you know, if enough time has gone by and now they qualify, that would be the best resolution. But let's say they want to, they are removed from Canada and they'd like to come back a little bit faster, then they would have to get an authorization to return to Canada. They'd have to get special permission. The foreign national, they could also get um, a temporary resident permit. It's another kind of fix. It's a temporary fix. Um, it's kind of like the Band-Aid approach. Let's say, you know, their parents are here. It's a permanent resident. Um, maybe someone passes away and they have a temporary reason why they want to come back here. So there is that Band-Aid approach, but you have to convince an immigration officer to grant it in light of all the circumstances. So what is also interesting for us in the immigration context is that um, at our tribunals, um, anything that, that the offender says at the various tribunals or boards can be used in the criminal context. Well, the same can be true for us when considering any alternative measures. So anything, victim impact statements, et cetera, can be considered when they're rendering immigration decisions. Mm. And I, I'm, I've always been a bit confused by this. The six-month threshold for serious criminality, that's the threshold at which there is no right to appeal. So you can't appeal your, basically, your finding of inadmissibility. But what happens for a PR who gets a five-month sentence? Could they still be found inadmissible? Could they still be deported from Canada? Um, it is possible, but they would have the right of appeal. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you negotiate six months less a day, five months, whatever it may be, then they have the right of appeal to the Immigration Appeal Division where a panel member will hear their case and consider humanitarian and compassionate reasons why they should let this person remain in Canada and keep their status as a permanent resident. If there's a compelling enough case and the panel member finds in favor of the permanent resident, then they get to keep their status. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the status would be gone. Right, so my clients often ask me, you know, if I have a right to appeal, is it likely that I'll be successful? And I guess the only way to determine that is to go see an immigration lawyer and those specific facts and get somebody's expert input. There's no hard and fast rule here, really. Correct. And our ex expert determination would be maybe. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're all, we're all so helpful. <laughs> the, the typical lawyer answer of yeah. maybe, right? Because it does depend on, you know, how much community service has that person done? How integrated mm -hmm. into the community? Um, do they show up to work on time all the time? Are they, you know, positive influence in their workplace? We can consider and put forward all of these types of considerations. You know, do you play sports activities? Do you donate money? You know, what kinds of things, what is it about that person that would compel immigration to say, yes, we're going to let you stay? You just made a mistake, a bad decision. Mm -hmm. What are the, while we have you here, what are the big mistakes that criminal lawyers make uh, that you see in your practice that we should be aware of? I think it's the not considering the sentencing provisions. Mm. I think that um, when a, a criminal lawyer has someone who is either a permanent resident or foreign national uh, at their doorstep, looking at how and working with immigration counsel to make sure that it's positioned in the best possible way, I think is the best, to make sure that the sentencing provisions are considered. If there's a way to negotiate around a different offense, maybe uh, a lesser offense, maybe um, a longer community service provision, something else, so that way we can make sure that they maneuver through both the immigration and the criminal 
realm safely. So I understand with the changes of um, the impaired driving laws, there may now be immigration consequences for permanent residents that result from a conviction for impaired driving. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? That was huge when that came out. Because what we found really interesting was that Parliament made this decision to change uh, the criminal code and the driving offense provisions, the driving under the influence provisions. And um, what was really interesting about that is that the same conviction could result in two very different outcomes in the immigration world. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, it, overnight, literally on December 18th, 2018, it became a serious criminality offense. Whereas the day before, it was just criminality. And interestingly enough, the Supreme Court clarified for us in Tran as well the fact that, um, you know, maximum term of imprisonment in that offense, in that criminal code offense, is as it is at the time of the commission of the offense, not at the time that the sentencing or admissibility is assessed. So anyone who was convicted um, or had the offense occur prior to December 18th, 2018, and they're an, you know permanent resident or a temporary resident, they would be okay. They would mm -hmm. only fall within the scope of criminality. Anyone after that who committed that offense and is found guilty, of course, the, the other provisions, it's now serious criminality. Mm. So that's a big change. Is there anything uh, criminal lawyers need to know about the circumstances of an offense that are relevant? Does it matter if an assault happens in a bar or is alleged to have happened in the domestic context, for example? Absolutely. If it's a domestic uh, situation, so uh, there can be quite a few consequences in the immigration world. For example, if the person's a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident of Canada and they commit that offense and they're found guilty, they could lose their ability to sponsor people down the road. You cannot sponsor a, a family member or relative if you have that kind of assault, domestic assault conviction, or even an act of violence, um, just assault period against a family member. So that would prohibit them. Uh, the other piece is if the person is a foreign national in Canada, they of course would fall and under criminality or serious criminality, depending on, you know, how many years the term of imprisonment, etc. Um, so there are quite a few other ramifications that way. So again, if you can negotiate something else, that that's always a benefit to the individual. And when you work with criminal lawyers, because I assume you have criminal lawyers who send uh, their clients to you to get an immigration opinion or things like that, how early in the process would you ideally like to be consulted by somebody who is going to have immigration consequences arising from a potential criminal conviction? Uh, the sooner the better, because we can work together. I think that as long as we're you know prepared and we're keeping each other informed of any changes, any updates, I think that is really important. Because again, anything that happens at that criminal hearing um, can be used in the immigration context. So we're often looking at a lot of the convictions, victims impact statements, notes from the hearing, mm -hmm. et cetera, in the immigration realm, um, because they're used there by immigration candidates, public information. So they can use it. And I think that if we work together a little bit more, the sooner the better. I think that that would be the best for the client 
And really, that's what we all want, right, is the best for the client. Yeah, absolutely. Consult early, consult often. Good advice. We wanted to include a recurring work-life balance segment because we think it is that important, even if a little bit trite. Because ultimately, and Danielle, I know you agree with this, it doesn't really matter how good you are at substantive criminal law if you don't build a practice that's sustainable. So while we know that everybody's circumstances are different and their preferences, we hope that by shedding light on how some criminal lawyers are striking their balance, that it might prove food for thought for how you orient your practice and your life to achieve professional and personal happiness and success, or at least try to. Hey, Harpreet. Hey. Uh, so I've asked you here today because you and I are friends in real life and on Twitter. And I've noticed that you are a very present parent. And you talk about your kids online, on Twitter. And you talk about them in relation to trying to balance a busy criminal defense practice. And I know that a lot of our listeners are trying to figure out how to have a family, how to balance their life, how to have it all, and you, my friend, are living the dream. So tell us how you did it. This is the dream, this, such, this such is it. as it is. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd like to think, you, you, want, you want a couple things in your life. You want to be good at home with your parent, with your family, with your kids. You want to be a good lawyer, and you want to sleep eight hours a day. Pick two. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what you got to do. I'm joking. It, it's hard, but... Uh, like, I want to be there because uh, they only have so many years where they even want to be anywhere near me. And then I'm waiting for the sweet, sweet release of when they don't want to talk to me at all. <laughs> but for now, I hang out with them and I spend time with them. And then eventually when they get to bed, then I take out my laptop and then you get that three, four hours of work in before before calling it a night yourself. So, you know, that's that's the short answer. But it's not easy. It takes effort. It takes work. And set the scene for us. How old are they? They are eight and five, and they're monstrous little boys. <laughs> and uh, they live to drive me crazy. Yeah. Because it's a thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And you uh, are talking about how you bring them to martial arts training. Yes. Taekwondo. Taekwondo. Because you have to. Uh, you got to keep them occupied. So two or three days a week, they go to Taekwondo. One day a week, I take them to basketball. And that keeps them busy enough, tires them out, gives me one hour where they're not wailing into my ear, which is nice. Yeah. And then uh, bring them home and hopefully it tires them up a little bit. And so uh, uh, my twins are 10 now. Nice. And uh, we've been kind of cycling through the same conversation every couple of years because... Right. You know, they, you tell them, you talk about it a little bit, they, and they forget, and then you have to cycle back. And I think you know the conversation that I'm talking about. And that is, uh, what do you do? What is your job? And uh, why, why are you defending the bad guy? My kids don't care as long as there's cookies in the pantry. <laughs> as, long, as long as there's cookies and juice, they're good. Uh, my big guy... He's, he's now eight, maybe a year ago or so. He mm. says to me, Dada, I want to be a lawyer. Mm. I said, okay. I've never encouraged him to be a lawyer because I know better. So I say to him, uh, I say to him, okay, well, why do, you want to be a, why do you want to be a lawyer? And he says, Dada, I want to do what you do. 
what do you think I do? He says, well, Dada, you check your computer, you work on jigsaw puzzles, and you read comic books. <laughs> That's an accurate description of my day-to-day, -day, so we can be a lawyer. Uh, my little guy says that I am an investigator. I investigate things. That's pretty accurate. Yep. And uh, then we just leave it a nice vague, data helps people get out of jail. And yeah. uh, they don't ask any uh, follow-up questions, and I'm okay with that for now. They're still younger than yours, so I got time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the helping um, helping someone get out of jail is a really good, neat way of describing it, and yeah. it works in the younger ages. And I, I commend that description to anyone out there listening, yeah. for sure. And it encapsulates exactly what we're doing. We're either trying to get people out of jail or keep people out of jail. And uh, they, they can understand that because jail is something visceral, something they understand from cartoons or other TV or whatever. Right. They know what jail is. They know what the police are. So to say, I help people get out of jail, that's good enough. They understand that. They don't ask the follow-up questions of, well, are they bad guys or good guys yet? Mm. And we'll leave that for, I'll wait for them to ask and I'll figure it out. Yeah, I th it's a lot of figuring it out as you go. It is. The nature of parenting. <laughs> Much like criminal defense. Yep. Uh, the plan is someday they'll ask, and then I'll say, have a cookie. And I assume <laughs> that'll settle the question. But, you know, I, I've always had this instinct that uh, it made sense to kind of reveal how important the work is mm -hmm. because it it does keep me occupied for so many hours of the day. And I just always had this, this feeling that they c should know a little bit about the stakes. Yes. Um, and that was kind of a helpful way for them to understand why I wasn't there every night necessarily. Yeah. They, they need to know that we're doing something and uh, the, th the work we do is important and is valuable. And it's not just, it's, it's not just helping bad guys do bad things because sometimes they may start to think that. They need to understand that there's a greater good involved uh, in addition to putting cookies and juice in the pantry. So <laughs> And Harpreet, I, you know, I think that your kind of vocal presentation of, of this dual identity of, you know, kick-ass criminal defense lawyer and really present and engaged dad is really helpful for the profession. And I don't know how conscious it was for you in kind of revealing that online, uh, whether it's something that you consciously decided to take on and put out in the world or, or what. Maybe you can kind of take us through that. It, it wasn't conscious. So I have the social, pres uh, social media presence. And at first I started out, I wanted to tweet out like really intellectual law related things sure. about court of appeal decisions. And I thought that that, 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 that niche has been filled. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of that out there. So I figured let's, there has to be something else I can talk about. Then I realized my, I was raging against my kids one day and I just put it online. And then all of a sudden I see other people are tweeting out similar things. It's like, I found my niche. This is my place in the universe for now. And yeah, that's how it happened. It wasn't a conscious thing at all. But if it helps other people relate and, and it helps me relate to them, that's only a good thing. Well, I, you know, I think it's going to help other dads. Mm -hmm. right? I hope so. You know, because we're lagging behind other professions and industries. You, I think that paternity leave is still culturally prohibited. Mm -hmm. 
in the defense world, uh, though I, I do note that a lot of crowns uh, take paternity mm-hmm. leave. It, yeah. It's not... Uh, I don't. I don't think it's on par with the the women in the crown's office mm-hmm. that take maternity leave. But um, I think we're all. It would benefit everyone if there was a shift um, that that allowed uh, men to behave in the way you're behaving, Harpreet, which is to be present dads. Well, it, it requires a wider cultural shift. Mm. Uh, I know there are other dads who are more present than I, and I look at them and I'm like, oh my God, I can't handle what you guys are handling. Good on you. Uh, some of them are crowns, and some mm-hmm. of them, they mm-hmm. have the hours, and they're able to do that a little bit easier. But as there as there's a wider cultural shift, hopefully we'll see more of that. Uh, and again, if, if someone's looking at me and says, all right, here's a dad, and he's doing it, I can do it too. That that can only be a good thing. I hope. And how do you find the the system is reacting to kind of parenting duties and obligations? Like, are you are you finding con- constrained still? If you need to to cut out of court early because there's a specialist appointment, how how do you find that cultural shift is coming along? I'm learning, and uh, I've realized that as you go through these these things yourself you realize that before I had kids, when other people were saying these things, it didn't register. Mm -hmm. If someone said to me when I was, before I had kids, if someone said, I have childcare issues, so I'm going to be a little bit late for court, uh, my, I'm sorry, but sometimes I would think to myself, well, you know, get it together, drop your kid off early, or, you know, make these arrangements because you know you have a kid. And it, it's horrible, but sometimes I would think that way. So now when I hear code like, I had childcare issues. That's why I'm late. I know what that means. It, right. it probably means there was an exploding diaper or something. <laughs> and it's like, I understand. So yeah. that's one thing I would want people to know is that if someone says they have childcare issues, there's an 80% chance it involved an exploding diaper. <laughs> it, the struggle is real. It is. Yeah. It is absolutely real. So uh, I'm learning these codes now because I'm going through it. So when I hear them, I... I, I'm sympathetic, and yeah. I try not to hold others. Uh, sorry, I should put it the other way. Uh, I try and make sure others understand as well. If others mm-hmm. don't understand, it's like, no, no, I get it. I'm going through it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good uh, tip. We don't need to be dicks to each other, right? <laughs> if the if the crown has a childcare issue uh, or an appointment with a specialist, there there are ways to make sure your clients. Uh, rights are safeguarded, but also to be a, a good, generous colleague and and figure out how you can work out the timing. Yeah, there's there are things that we have to fight about, and there are things that we will fight about, and there's a time and place to be a dick. Sometimes it's just going to be that way. Sure. Uh, but this is not one of those places. This is one of the things that we should try and be flexible with each other to the best of our abilities. And then once that's done, then we can, you know, then we can beat each other to a pulp because that's what we do sometimes. <laughs> but not on this. This is not the thing mm-hmm. to do, right. to, to go at each other about. Right. right. And Harpreet, did you find, as I did, that after you became a parent, you be- also became a more efficient lawyer? You have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's only a certain number of hours in a day. Uh, you do have to sleep more than five hours a night, usually. Uh, and there's just certain things that have to get done. Uh it's not optional. Apparently, these kids want to eat every day. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? 
So that has to get done. You have to, they have to be put to bed. You got to help them out with their homework. Meanwhile, you have to finish your factum. You just, you, you, you're not wasting as much time as you used to, and you're multitasking as much as possible. I feel like my advocacy has improved also with having to figure out how to explain something as they get older, right? Like, yep. do, do age appropriate explanations for complex concepts? has helped my communication skills and I think my advocacy in general. Yep, depends on your judge, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it helps me a lot and uh, I, I agree. Uh, it also helps me in that I see that sometimes there are simple things in law that we take for granted that run contrary to common law, uh, to our common sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you an example, all right? Your Honor, the statement, it's involuntary. And an involuntary statement made under threat, it's inherently unreliable. Even if a person is making that statement that's contrary to their self-interest, you can't rely on that. It's not fair. Me three hours from now, if you don't tell me who made this mess, I'm going to take all your toys away. (laughs) Why? Because I'm a hypocrite. (laughs) You know? I'll take that involuntary statement. Sure Someone is, someone's going to admit to that yeah. making that mess. And then the very next day, I'll argue that that same statement is involuntary and inadmissible. You know, so. <laughs> so you've told us about the kids, but there's also your co-parent in all of this. How do you manage all of that? Well, you got to make that effort. You have to put your phone down on occasion mm. to the best of your abilities. Uh, but that's true not just in our profession, but in any profession where you're a right. business owner, you're a business person. Right. You have to you have to try and put the phone down. And um, it re- requires a lot of patience. I lucked out in that I married someone who is not in the profession. Mm-hmm. So Smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, you know, I don't know how it works when you have two lawyers married to each uh, to one another. It must be all sorts of mass chaos. But it worked out for us to have someone not in the profession. Mm-hmm. And then I can complain. And, you know, she wonders what the hell I'm talking about sometimes. <laughs> and you explain. And then she tells me about her entirely unrelated profession. It's a welcome change to hear about something mm-hmm. different from my craziness. Yeah, I'm in you the know. same boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't marry a lawyer. That's my advice, if you're a lawyer. I've trained my partner to just say 11B in lawyer parties, and he feels very good about that. He oh, knows yes. the word Jordan, and he knows 11B, and he's ready to roll anytime with my like all criminal lawyer nonsense people showing up. Well, the reason you're a horrible partner, and let me tell you why, <laughs> is because my wife is exempt from any and all legal law-related parties or yeah, get-togethers. very they, smart. They, they shouldn't yeah. have to go to our parties. Absolutely should not. Because they're terrible. And everyone is terrible at just talking about work. Can I just say we're terrible people? Truly. Truly. Well. <laughs> Danielle is a lawyer apologist. Yes. Well, not entirely horrible. No. 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 But yeah, don't take your partner to any law-related get-togethers. They hot hot tip. That, that's a hot tip. That's a hot take. Big, big thanks to Michael, Catherine, and Harpreet for joining us in the lounge today. We hope that they and you can stop by again soon. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Dana Hawes and marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. 
We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. <laughs>